This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. I think you're the first um, remote guest that we've had who's had a uh, professional microphone. <laughs> well, well, I got I got that going for me. Yeah, you're gonna sound good. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. We're joined today by Jared Santo. How are you, Jared? Hi, doing very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, people may know you from uh, the multimedia conglomerate that is uh, the changelog. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they may. I've never heard it described as such, but I appreciate it, I guess. Well, you got videos now, and you got a whole ton of podcasts, and you know, you're a whole network now. Yeah, we have a small portfolio of shows. We're happy to, <laughs> to produce, and... Uh, it's going pretty well. Yeah, uh, I, I suspect a good chunk of our listenership is familiar with the changelog. But uh, if you're not, head over to changelog.com and uh, you can see there's a podcast there that's like a, that is called the changelog and then a number of other shows uh, as well that uh, people should check out all very well produced and uh, good content if you're into the type of things that we talk about here as well. Thank you very much. I, yeah, I would imagine that our, our audience probably overlaps, you know, maybe 40, 50, maybe 60%. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the reason why we had you on today, well, I mean, we can talk about just about anything, but the, the, the impetus for it was, uh, you know, Sean and I have been talking over a couple of episodes now about uh, open source sustainability stuff, and uh, a bunch of our audience engaged us on that topic, and uh, you were among them. And we had some good back and forth, and it's, I know it's a, a topic that comes up often on the changelog. And also, uh, there's an entire show on your network, Request for Commits, that I, I am not a subscriber to that because I just became aware of it. But uh, ah. but um, it basically deals with this topic on a recurring basis, right? Yeah, that's a show um, that's hosted by Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. And it's all about the human side of code, the sustainability, the governance, the how you deal with contributions. It's, it's very much a show by and for project maintainers and so it's very it's like a niche inside of a niche but it's actually aside from the changelog it's my favorite show on our network because they get into a lot of the nitty-gritty of the problems that we're all trying to find solutions to but there's so much nuance so much subjectivity to it that's very difficult there's not much black and white involved as there are with you know technical meritocracy yeah and i know like listen from listening to the changelog a frequent like arc of a conversation is like i did this for a while then i got burned out or then i had no more time for it and so i stopped doing it and i don't pay attention to that anymore but i've got this new thing over here or like or 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 other things like that so that, those are the situations i think we're trying to figure out a way to avoid and you know just to i guess revisit for a little bit sean and i basically were talking specifically about like patreon funding things and like how that gets complicated because there's so much more that goes into sustainability of an open source project than like the people who commit code to a project right yeah what are your feelings on that yeah i mean i think that like i said it's very subjective that's project by project you know person by person i think patreon is problematic in in a lot of the ways that sean was uh, kind of i don't what did you call it? it makes you feel icky or just it doesn't feel quite right 
um, because it's focused around a person, whereas right. uh, m- most projects go beyond a single person. And there is you know very little transparency with regard to withdrawal. Um, so I definitely are issues there. But yeah, I mean, the problem, like you said, Derek, is is that this is something that needs to be solved because we, we have, like, burnout is a known thing. We were, you know, with the change log, we were not trying to talk about open source sustainability, right? That wasn't our goal. We were just talking about cool open source projects and <laughs> keeping up and, you know, this is an interesting thing. But, you know, all these people who've been in it for a long time, except for Daniel Stenberg, who's the maintainer of Curl, who's like a robot and has been doing it for almost 20 <laughs> years and like two hours a day, every day of his life. And just, you know, he's fine. He doesn't have any problems with keeping it going. We all have this problem of like, there's this burnout thing and, and how can we, you know, work around that or, or solve for it. And so Patreon is one way that's working for a small group of people. It's not the only way, but it's one that is getting more popular, I think, because of the success of that small group of people. And you had mentioned specifically Open Collect, which is kind of based more around this idea of like you have a community built around this open source and you want to fund that community in some way and tries to provide that transparency that might be missing from, you know, your typical Patreon tip jar kind of kind of situation. Is that accurate? Yeah. So that was right. I was interested to hear what Sean thought about Open it's Open Collective. Open Collect is their Twitter yeah. handle, so it's right. a bit yeah. confusing. But that platform, like its point is transparency with of withdrawals. So it's not a single recipient. It's a group recipient. They also handle some of like the problem with receiving money as they have like a parent nonprofit and there's, there's stuff there that is kind of nice. Yeah. But the reason why I think it, it differentiates is because if you use it right, you can actually see all the expenses coming out and they can be tracked and there's no ambiguity about where's the money going. Mm-hmm. It was certainly the most compelling of all. We had a bunch of different services sent at us. And I, and I think that one in particular made the most sense for the types of projects that I was sort of talking about. Yeah, I mean, one thing that is important to clarify, right? I wasn't necessarily saying that funding open source through various, for lack of a better way to phrase it, tip jar style services. It's not so much that can't be done. It's just that there is a lot of ambiguity and a lot of questions that need to be answered. And a lot of those are questions that I don't want to answer for my projects. And I, I think a lot of other people don't want to. Um, and so, for example, Webpack, I, I remember, I think was uh, the one that you linked me to. And one question that I had when I just saw that, like, a lot of it was just going out to pay for people developing it. So does that mean that if if somebody just goes and submits a, a commit to Webpack, are they able to claim some amount of money? Or is it only people who are specifically trying to pay their bills off of it? And I think there, like, there's, I'm not saying that either one of those answers is bad or worse than the other. But there, it is a very different uh, situation depending on which of those directions you want to go. Yeah, I think in the case of Open Collective, and, and by the way, I, I got I have no stake in Open Collective, or I'm of not like, <laughs> promoting this necessarily. As I just think it's it's a, interesting to talk about these different platforms. And um, there's actually a an event recently at GitHub that we had called Sustain, which we helped organize, which about 100 people trying just talking about these problems. And there were people from all these different platforms there. And one thing that uh, Pia Mancini, who's one of the co-founders of Open Collective, said there, which resonated with me, which is that, you know, it's not like there's going to be, you know, a quote-unquote winner in like the, how are we going to get this done? I mean, maybe there will be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a one true way of finding these solutions, but uh, perhaps it's, you know, different things in, in different cases. And I think that what you said, Sean, I think is true, that there's still a lot of lack of clarity around what is deserving of a withdrawal or right. who gets to do what. 
And I don't think that the platform itself actually addresses those things. It's probably, you know, in that particular case, it's probably like some sort of external governance that they've decided on or something. I don't even yeah. know. Right. No, I'd, lo- I'd love to see just some community standards established around this. It's just one of those things where it's a tricky question. And I think that all of the answers will make, at least if I were making that decision for, say, Diesel, all of the possible answers would make me feel bad. So if there was just a community accepted, this is how projects which are looking to fund themselves should, at, by default, sort of do it. I guess I'm the language I'm using here is stronger than I'm intending, but just sort yeah. of like... You know, for example, I would say that most people would generally agree that if you don't know which license to pick for your project, either MIT or BSD is probably a reasonable default. And I don't mm-hmm. think we have the same sort of uh, consensus on reasonable defaults for funding projects. Yeah, it'd be cool to have something like chooseolicense.com where it's like right. chooseyourfundingmodel.com and you could kind of, you know, go through a wizard and, and get the answers. But like you said, I don't think we'd know what right. no, makes of course. sense <laughs> right now. No, there's not enough people who want to fund open source for us to have tried it enough to... Uh... Yeah, that's that's definitely the big problem right now. I think, like, how do you disperse and how does all that work is mm-hmm. kind of the secondary problem, which I think is actually a, will become a, a much bigger issue as more people have to deal with it. But right now, it's like, how can we convince people that this is a worthwhile thing to even do? Right. Right. And that's I think that's one of my larger questions, right, is like this is one way to do it, right, to get end users submitting 10 and $20 or whatever the case may be. And there's certainly a lot of like if, if you look at the Webpack um, Open Collective, right, their annual budget, according to their Open Collective page, based on the contributions they're getting is 100 grand a year. So that's pretty good, you know. And they just got another 125 from Mozilla for uh, WebAssembly stuff. Cool. So like they're doing well, um, but like 125 came from Mozilla, right? And, you know, some of the people that are, I don't know the people who work on Webpack, but presumably some of them are doing it as they're being paid for their job. And I think that realistically, you know, as we found in like other industries, right? uh, The money, it doesn't come from like the millions of end users. It comes from the people with a vested interest that are in in the middle between those users and, you know, the, the makers, I guess. And so, like, long-term, it seems to me like the right way to go is to do the thing that so many people want to do but are finding a hard thing to do. Like what Sean's doing, right? So Sean is being paid by Shopify to work on Rails um, because Shopify is heavily invested in Rails and gets a lot out of Rails. And, you know, you could argue that some part of them just wants to contribute back, but realistically, they recognize that, like, it's great to have somebody who can just... (laughs) commit to master when they're having a problem right yeah absolutely so i don't know how like do you guys see one of those ways winning out over long term or is this something that you think will be in will be in the state where like we're trying to do it both ways for a while and maybe that'll work out just fine would you rather see end users funding this directly if it were at all possible like what do you think i mean i think if we look at webpack success while it is open to everybody to contribute they have had large contributors i think just even today they announced trivago secured like a hundred thousand over a few years or something uh investment in their contribution donation i don't know what they call it into webpack and i think yeah the tip jar style nickel and dimes ultimately just is not going to add up to enough money to sustain enough people to for the infrastructure to continue on i love the situation that sean is in i think if we could have more of those I think that's a great setup. I think it makes a lot of sense for Shopify. It makes a lot of sense for Sean and the rest of us 
who are appreciative as rails people who you know uh are in the good of it because he can put all that time into it we're all thankful i think it's a great model unfortunately you can pretty much count those on one hand i think maybe two Mm -hmm. on the last show derek you said you don't think that that's like a scalable thing and i or i can't remember your exact words but you felt like that wasn't a long-term thing that could happen or you were skeptical of it and i think if we could make that a trend that people are starting to see the value companies are starting to see the value in doing that maybe it could become you know not half a dozen people yeah i think i would love to see it i think i'm skeptical because i don't know that the financials of it make sense for these companies ultimately like on just a financial basis in a way that's easily measurable right yeah the in a way that's easily measurable is the big problem right. like there's definitely enough people who come with questions where it's like oh and then i was able to save them two days of debugging mm-hmm. i think there's enough of those that add up over the course of a quarter to easily justify it but it's difficult to measure those it's difficult to measure exactly how much time people have saved by that but you can imagine somebody who is like tasked with managing the finances of a company looking at that and looking at your salary and being like okay well what does he do on rails tell me about it and somebody says yes. like oh he does these three things this year he did these three major things and they're like okay well how did that help us ship more products to people and they're like uh <laughs> well it didn't but he also helps us out in slack and uh you know like and it be- then your your argument starts to get less quantitative and more qualitative and that be- that's hard for people who want everything to just tie out with numbers but there's right. a, those those aspects in all of business right like marketing doesn't always tie out nicely and directly um and this is just another one of those things which also is kind of marketing <laughs> uh, right. well there's a reason that that the average lifespan of cmo is less than five years okay <laughs> it's also a field where it's hard to directly measure the immediate impact of your work right and i've also worked at a number of companies where like there was a fear around contributing to open source based on what that would leave the company on the hook for, right? Mm-hmm. For IP type situations and licenses and, and, and things like that. That mm-hmm. I think, and that's particularly prevalent at much, much larger companies, right? That have the kind of money and could afford to have people doing this. Like I've worked at companies before that made significant use of open source had developers that wanted to contribute things back to that same open source community where management was a little more like hmm <laughs> like either that's our stuff or like if we do that then what else becomes open uh, you know it, and it's just again people not necessarily understanding the benefit of like well now it's committed back upstream that's not our code anymore i don't have to maintain that code anymore right and i just think that it's for many reasons it's going to be hard for the companies that are of a size that can support this work Mm. i mean i I think there are reasons that it is i agree with you that the tricky parts of it are that it's hard to measure and certainly i agree that if there's any sort of financial difficulty open open source is going to be the first thing to go out the window i think there is a place for it i do agree that the sustainability is going to come from corporate donations more so than nickel and dimes from the from the end users and the one benefit of of having it be donating to a project or some or you know even in some cases a, a legal entity a foundation for that project is that there's no question of the integrity of whether the people who are working on that project are changing what they're working on because of who's contributing to it yeah i guess it's also like then what's acceptable like for example certainly i'm going to end up prioritizing certain things 
because I work for Shopify, but it's not because I work for Shopify. It's because I see Shopify's problems more than any other problems as a side effect of me working for Shopify. But I'm not doing things that wouldn't make sense to add into Rails, regardless of that situation. Mm. I do agree. So one of the biggest problems with the paid full-time open source is that you just can't do it unless you are already established in open source. You know, it's not the sort of thing where I could give somebody else advice on how to get a similar gig unless they're already in some very select group of people. So I do think a big part of the sustainability solution is getting more people involved and getting more people involved requires more people contributing just in general on company time. So I like the idea you had mentioned, you know, more companies should just be doing one day a week. Uh I think one thing that is a really good thing to do on top of that is to be more flexible in how that time gets distributed. So... One day a week might work for some people for some projects. One week a month might work better for other projects. Right. You know, Shopify, we have our new thing where where we have people take three months a year to go do open source. Right. And I think that you can sell that type of arrangement to companies. And I think that bigger gains can be made in the one day a week kind of thing over the short term by selling it as like, so many people are trying to recruit engineers right now. And it's like, okay, you want to recruit engineers. Like, you could let them work a four-day week. That would recruit a lot of engineers. Or you could say, like, you're going to get a fifth day that's... On the fifth day, you're going to do open source work. Which, you know, somebody doing the math will be like, well, that doesn't help. But, but like, then you can start to be like, look, they're still going to be working for us. It's going to be marketing for us because our company is doing this, right? Yeah. It's going to be Employee good for recruiting. Employee retention the, and the, they the will biggest help, selling point. Right. And they will help us. Like, they will fix our issues with Rails or whatever the project may yeah. be. And I think that I'd love to see that from more companies. I, I work with a lot of companies who are trying to hire teams and they ask us like, well, how can I hire? And it's like, well, do you have a blog that engineers write on? Do you let them contribute to open source? Like the easiest way to hire is to appear like a really great place to work <laughs> and to pay a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. There's a parallel here where um, with Apple and their AI research. So I'm not sure when it was, but you know, they, they recently opened up and started publishing papers uh, in AI research. I think they even have an AI blog now. And, you know, Apple notoriously uh, secretive and hush-hush type of a company. Why would they do this? It seems like a competitive advantage to have your own AI research for yourself. And the reason came out, I'm not sure if it was like officially announced or if it was like a side leak or whatever, but basically the AI people demanded it. Like their their talent internally demanded and wanted their research to be published. And they were in a mm. position to do so because they are the talented people that Apple needs to keep happy. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's been some of that with open source in certain ways where, especially like you said, Derek, with attracting talent, you know, it's, it's an attractant now to have open source friendly environment. And maybe when it comes time to uh, sustain it for the long term, maybe we have to flex our collective muscles internally from the bottom up and say like, this is, I don't, I mean, demand is a, is a big word, but you know, this is something that's important to me inside of our company. And maybe you can start to convince people that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I I also want to take a second to kind of like change gears on project types for a minute. Cause like, it's easy when you're having these types of conversations to focus on like Webpack and Rails and Node and like these large open source projects that can support a number of full-time people if needed or, you know things like that. But so many of the burnout stories that I hear are from people who maintain three or four gems that are relatively popular, like Ryan Big, right? It wasn't too long ago that he announced that like he was basically giving up maintaining all of his gems, right? And like those aren't large enough projects to warrant 
certainly full-time people working on them and possibly not really large enough to warrant any sort of significant tip jar type situation that would be able like leave that person able to quit their job and work on that and work on their four open source projects full-time or something like that i mean I think if more people were able to just help work on issues right fewer maintainers would feel the need to try and go full-time that might be it uh, but like is there any other advice we can give to the listeners who have like one or two or three open source projects that either like they'd love to spend more time on but can't find the time or feel like they're neglecting or maybe just feel like they don't want to look at anymore but feel this like that they have these users who are dependent on them right i would say that if somebody's feeling that that problem the time that they are able to contribute to the project they shouldn't be tr spending it on fixing issues they should be f spending it on trying to figure out how to attract more contributors because there are all, all there are always things that you can do that you aren't doing whether it's just making sure that you're curating issues that are good for newcomers helping to mentor people who are trying to fix their first issue telling mm. people that the project needs help yeah that's fair one of the things i was thinking about was oftentimes those projects get to a point where it's just like i don't want to look at this anymore so i've just i've shut down and i'm not responding to prs i'm not doing anything and that's totally your right to do like just because you published an open source library one time does not leave you on the hook for continued maintenance of it you should feel fine to walk away from it but by the time you reach that point you're past the point of when you should have been looking for somebody to come on that you were going to give commit access yeah, to. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah. And so, like, right now, like, Scenic is my example of, like, I really like working on that. I don't get enough time to work on it. It doesn't really need that much work because it's pretty stable. But I should probably be looking for other people that I could say, like, here, you have commit access now. But then there's that part of me who's like, this is mine. Right? right? Like, <laughs> do I want to give that away? And by the time I feel like, yeah, I'm ready to give that away, it's probably too late. So like it's probably the time to start looking and being like, well, who's committed a few times to this project and who do I trust to like kind of make good decisions, sound decisions on this going forward? Like maybe we should try giving them commit access. And we haven't really we haven't really done that at, uh, with a lot of ThoughtBot open source projects. It tends to be people who work at ThoughtBot get commit access. And if they leave, we we continue to give them commit access. But very infrequently do we actually provide that commit access externally. But I think I might try that with uh, with some scenic stuff just to see how that goes. I don't think that commits are a great way to look for people to give commit access to. I actually think a better thing to look for are people who are frequently doing code review, commenting on issues and pull requests, or commenting in whatever community channels that you have. Those are the people that you want to continue yeah. to encourage. Yeah, and I guess I was I was using commits as a sloppy way of getting at like who has provided me some evidence that I trust their governance or I trust sure. their I trust their judgment when it comes to this project that I would be okay with. <laughs> if they if they did something while I wasn't able to review it or something. Absolutely. Um, and I think that for smaller projects, if you're the one maintainer finding maintainer number two could go such a long way towards like avoiding the feeling that like I'm I own this. This is kind of a bummer. And I've had a few yeah. of those smaller gems that I maintain that like I have been like, hey, you seem way more committed to this than I do. You take it on. And it's really nice, but then like a few months later, that person's like, "No, I'm no longer going to do this," right. and then I have to find I have to find somebody else. But yeah, I'd say for smaller projects, go ahead, put the Patreon thing there. Like you're, if you, especially if you're like the one person working on it, and yeah. go ahead, see what happens. Or you know, open collective if you want to be more open about it um, and provide like that transparency, or you know, any of these other services that exist out there. I don't want to play favorites. Those are just the two that I know of off the top of my head. So I think for smaller projects, that makes sense and see what happens so like the, the stuff that you all doing at changelog mm -hmm. it's not well i mean there are there is open source code right like the blog is open source and things like that 
it's kind of like an open source thing though even like and and you're finding a way to fund that somehow right so through sponsorships right, right. and things like that do you see any parallels in what you're able to do at the changelog that you know would be useful in a more general like i have an open source library area yeah potentially i mean we you know we see ourselves more along the lines of like an indie developer you know media company type of a weird thing mm-hmm. and so there's, there's more parallels perhaps with like indie developers who are like trying to make a living doing you know an indiv- independent thing our source code for yeah our cms is is all open source our nightly emails all open source so uh, we have open source running you know through our veins always have that's why we cover it and so like side projects that i do are up on github and everything else mm-hmm. but you know, we're producing an MP3 at the end at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and so we're producing media. At the same time, we want to be independent, want to stay independent, and so we're looking at ways of making that sustainable. Now, we've been fortunate enough that um, we've had Adam, my partner, who's co-founded the Changelog back in 2009, back before I was involved. I didn't get involved until 2013, but Adam Stakoviak and Win Netherland uh, started it in 2009 as a podcast and a blog. And it's been going ever since, and Adam has been full-time on the changelog since, I think, 2014, a couple of years, and it also supports me part-time, so I'd like to get me full-time if possible. But yeah, we find all the same parallels. We're trying to find models that make sense inside of what we do, and we produce, really, content. We produce uh, shows, newsletters, you know, stuff like that, stuff that we're trying to, to provide to the developer community. I, I feel like we produce conversations. And so, like, how do you monetize a conversation without feeling weird about it? Well, you know, you guys are doing very similar things. And so we've looked at models like Open Collective. We used to actually have a membership model. In fact, when Adam relaunched back in 2013, when he decided that he couldn't do the changelog as a hobby anymore because he was burning out and he had to actually make it sustainable or he had to shut it down, um, he relaunched at that time as a member-supported podcast. And so he took out all advertising and he went completely member supported and the income, you know, fell through the floor because the (laughs) members were not supporting it. Uh, Some did. And we thank them for that. Uh, We've had some very loyal listeners and and supporters over the years. We're thankful for every one of them, but it was not a way that it was going to sustain. So ultimately we've gone back to actually, we opened up our membership to be completely free and just be a community of like-minded developers and we support it based on sponsorships and that's currently working but you know who knows how long that will work (laughs) like sean said when when times get tough you know the open source budget is going to disappear well also the podcast advertising budget is probably (laughs) next up on the chopping block so these are things that we think about but we don't have any answers that uh and if you guys have answers please tell us (laughs) and we've seen other other models for like, so you, you said, you know, you consider yourself like this open source indie media company, right? And I think yeah. that's a great way of describing what the changelog looks like to me as somebody who consumes some of that content, right? And then I think you have like Yehuda, right? So uh, with uh, with Tilda, right? Or Tilde, or however you say the company name. <laughs> right. <laughs> however you say that word, right? You know, from his open, like, I don't want to mischaracterize the situation, but had, had been doing an, a ton, him and Tom Dale and all those folks that, are, you know, usually commit with him on things, uh, had been doing a ton of open source work for many years. So on that notoriety is able to do consulting work and build a company around consulting work that ultimately lets him 
write the open source code he wants to yeah. write. Yeah, they'll definitely admit that like they do as much consulting as they need to pay for their open source work. Right. And uh, isn't that also, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that also where 37 Signals now Basecamp started? Weren't they do they did consulting originally, I think. Um, yeah. and did enough yep. so that they could work on their products and then ultimately we're like yes. we don't need to do the consulting anymore, we can just do the products. And so again, that's really a situation you can only be in <laughs> if you are already like well-known open source person or somehow well-known consultant, right? Um, and being a well-known open source person quite often makes you able to be at least uh, draw enough interest to do that consulting aspect of it. Definitely, you would need to be able to charge enough that you don't have to bill 50 weeks out of the year, right. which requires something. Right. And I yeah. know there's probably a number of people who are independent like consultants right now or freelancers who are saying, like, <laughs> you are grossly underestimating how hard this is. <laughs> it is a full-time job and you will not have time for open source after that. And uh, yeah, that's true as well. So be careful. I'm not I'm not encouraging you all to uh, <laughs> to quit your current jobs, uh, do some independent consulting and think that that's going to leave you with 20 hours a week to do open source because it's probably not. Uh, right. Unless you're Yehuda, I guess, or somebody of no, that. I don't think you need to be Yehuda, though. There was a great talk at I think it was Keep Ruby Weird, like two or three years ago, titled, uh, I think it might have been the keynote, actually. It was uh, Just Charge More. Oh, from um, Patrick, from Patty Patrick 11. McKenzie. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think I got his last name right. I hope I did. I think so. Just talking about, like, you are worth more money than you think. And ultimately, whether or not you're going to have time for open source is going to come down to what do you bill at? Yeah. Well, I can speak to that a little bit. I'm a, a software developer for hire, you know, on contract, have mm -hmm. been for... Uh, 12 years on my own for five years and i also live in a, in a small town outside of omaha nebraska so my living costs are low and i make plenty of money to work on open source or even to do the changelog as a secondary business mm -hmm. um, in my spare time because i charge a decent rate and it took me a while to find that confidence and, and to feel like i was actually worthy of of the rate but i think for a lot of people uh, that is good advice, as long as you're providing quality work and you know all those other things. And you have you have spare cycles. And I'm, I'm thankful that I'm in that circumstance. It's not for everybody, but I think uh, some people can find success that way. Yeah, and certainly, like uh, I think the I've talked to a number of people too who are like, well, I'm not. It's not. I'm not. There's no way I'm worth X, right? And it's like, well, you're worth X if somebody's willing to pay X, right? Yeah. <laughs> Until they're not willing to pay X, then guess what? <laughs> Yeah. That's that's the way markets work, I guess. Especially in a supply constrained market that yeah. we're in. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, literally, I always just tell people, you know, your next client, just try bumping your hourly rate by ten dollars an hour or twenty five dollars an hour, and just keep right. doing that. Eventually, maybe somebody will scoff on on it, but you'll get a lot farther than you'd think you will. Right. That's exactly what I did, probably maybe seven eight years ago. It was just every new client, I was just going to keep raising the rate until somebody said no, because I, I didn't get any no's until I got to a certain threshold. And once you start to get one or two no's, or like you said, people scoffing, now you've started, you know, you found, you found your ballpark. Yeah. So how did you find, I guess, how did you find finding the work, right? Like now I think that you've been doing this a number of years, you have that reputation and you get, I'm guessing, a lot of referral business from people that you've worked with or repeat customers and stuff like that. How, exactly. did, how did you find building that up in the first place? So I found it, you know, hard work. This was probably 2006, 2007, 2008 when I first was establishing myself as a contract developer. Um, back then, I was actually, you know, Twitter was quiet enough that you could actually just watch hashtags. I had a 
a little robot. I mean, it wasn't even a robot. It was basically a scraper that would just take t- specific t- Twitter searches for like I'm looking for, and then the word Ruby or I need help with, and then the word WordPress, and it would just put it into an RSS feed that I subscribed to. I was the only subscriber, obviously, and I would just check that every morning. And back then, Twitter was quiet enough that if you replied to one of those people, they were so delighted that somebody could help them with this particular thing, because people actually will turn to you know social media first. <laughs> Lots of times, and that or yeah. Stack Overflow is a thing now, so they'll turn there as well. But if they need help, they'll just like put it out into the ether. And most of us, nobody ever responds. And so I would respond to people and be like, "Hey, I can help you out with that." And I started building a client base that way. I feel like that was somewhat cool back then. I don't know if it would work anymore. There's probably too much noise. So just kind of like finding maybe unique paths to put yourself in the place where people that need your kind of help um, hmm. was one of the ways that I built a clientele. And then just doing good work. If, you, if you're fair and honest in this industry and do good work, people will just keep coming back and, and back and back. So that's that's the way I built that that side of it. That's a really interesting. Like I remember doing that myself. You know, back when Twitter was so much more low volume, I had like TweetDeck with like multiple columns of like these hashtags or keywords that I was like watching to be like, can I help anybody with this or can I learn something from about you know Git by watching this and yeah. And then when I knew I'd be like looking for another job and I wanted to work in Ruby and more open source things, I remember specifically putting in a lot of effort to answer a lot of questions on Stack Overflow because I didn't have a lot of open source work, but I knew being able to be like, look at these questions I've been able to answer. Like, that's another thing. And I, you know, now that I say that, like, I haven't had anybody point me to like, here's my Stack Overflow. Like, that's actually like a really interesting way to review a candidate, right? Like, because it requires them to communicate about the code. Yeah. Particularly like the questions they ask would be interesting to see. Anyway, I'm sure there's, I mean, if you go back through, some listeners are going to hear this and go look at my uh, Stack Overflow profile. <laughs> profile. And if you go back through, you're going to see some horrifying questions that are just like, I can't believe he didn't know that. Right. But that's how we all, that's, <laughs> I still have, I can't believe I didn't, he didn't know that moments, but I just don't put them on Stack Overflow. <laughs> I mean, people definitely ask for your Stack Overflow profile. It is, it's a thing. It is a thing. Oh, is all it? right. I'm always embarrassed to give it because the only thing of note in terms of reputation points on my Stack Overflow profile is some really bad advice I gave seven years ago about how to access a PHP variable from JavaScript. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Anything else that we should we should touch upon sustainability-wise or otherwise? Uh, well, there's other models uh, we had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Mike Parham's sidekick is kind of a, a model to perhaps model yourself after if your project looks like his right so a lot of these are kind of like what kind of project is yours and Derek I think you hit on a good subset of projects that it like there I don't have a good answer for the small yet crucial gem owner you know who's got (laughs) five things that serve you know a couple hundred people or Mm -hmm. companies a piece maybe patreon is the way to go in that sense I doubt that you know the people who are having success on patreon most of them have the reputation already. They have large projects or a lot, like they're, they're prolific or not, not notorious. That's a bad word, famous or something. <laughs> but yeah, for that subset, I don't know. But for like a, a project like Sidekick, I mean, there's a great success story where he's maintained complete independence and complete open source and yet a thriving small business. Mm. Are there other ones? I guess you have the kind of the red hot, red hat support model I don't know there's if the come licensing model 
you know, license it in a way that's unfriendly to big corporations. Or, I mean, there's even talk of like, you know, right, you explicitly in your license say if you use this uh, library in a product that makes over X dollars a year, you must pay a fee. Right. Um, There's the less direct version of that, of GPL (laughs) licensing it and saying that you will will relicense it under something that isn't GPL for a fee. Mm Mm-hmm. I know Sidekick has Sidekick Enterprise, but how do they... What's the carrot for Sidekick Enterprise? Is it added functionality? Yeah, it's added functionality. Okay. That's one of those, like... Sidekick Pro, in particular, doesn't give me a bad feeling. Just, I guess, mostly because I know Mike and I trust Mike not to, like, arbitrarily exclude a feature from the open source gem specifically for the money. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that's there is, is... always stuff that makes sense to be like yes it's extra stuff that most people don't need and the people who do need it have scaling problems and are going to be willing to pay for it and i trust the creator to like not arbitrarily withhold stuff yeah that's a fine line to walk and a difficult one i think in any product is to decide you know who gets this and who doesn't i think mike's done a good job along those lines i haven't followed super closely because i'm a casual user so i've always been on the the free tier or whatever but there are other ones, I don't want to name names, but larger projects where I've thought, ooh, this <laughs> this feels like you're holding it back, um, I don't know, like not maliciously, but it just felt wrong that this is a specific thing. But I mean, it's their prerogative. Right. So I remember Vagrant was another one, right? It's an open source project, but then it has like, like I remember I became like a paying Vagrant user because I was tired of using OpenBox at the time <laughs> as the VM. I think open box is the Oracle one, right? Whatever that's called. But you could, you know, HashiCorp, which is the um, company that makes Vagrant, which is really, I mean, Michael, right? And, you know, a number of people. But they had an adapter for using VMware, but you had to pay them to get it. And I felt like that was such a good, I felt like that was the perfect example of something they could charge money for. It was like, if you care what VM is running Vagrant and you have paid money to get VMware, you can now pay money to get the adapter for Vagrant for VMware. And I thought that yeah. was a really good example. I haven't kept up with Vagrant. I used it on like a couple projects that, that required something like that. And you know, nowadays, I think that those needs might be met by like Docker or something like that. But I thought that was a really like perfect breakdown of like, this is a really great place to put a paid versus free fork. But those are really hard to find, right? Exactly. And we see a number of like end user apps in the app store trying this as well. Be like, well, what do you get if you if you do a in app purchase? Like, what's the additional functionality? And uh, you know, with varying success as well. Have we uh, reached the end of our topic here? What else do we got? We exhausted it. <laughs> Anything else uh, that's catching your excitement at the moment, Jared? You know, there's lots of there's lots of trends, but honestly, um, none of them are necessarily uh, wowing me at the moment. Um, no. How about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, co- we cover so many things. Like the best part about about these shows is like I get super excited by the end of a of a call. I get interviewed with a specific project, and I always tell Adam, "Like, oh man, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna download that, or I'm gonna clone that, and I'm gonna try it out." And then uh, my life resumes, and I don't do any of those things. Right. Next week, I interview somebody else about another project, and, I, and then the loop just repeats. Right. So unfortunately, I don't try out a lot of the cool stuff that yeah. I'm that I'm tracking. The fortunate thing is, though, that like through that work, you at least have tabs on things. So like, if something blows up, like oh my gosh, Elixir is blowing up, you at least know what it is early on, right? So you're like, I know, I, right. I know what's going on. I know that. Um, I was into that before it was cool. Right. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did interview the Ethereum guys way back, right when the DAO split. So if you remember that, mm. it was we were way early on Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, 
So we got that going for us, <laughs> Me, which is not very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you are. Like I get a while back, I got really excited about Elixir. I still like Elixir. I, I'm not as like over the moon about it anymore. But I think like you, I hear about a lot of things like on the changelog and just, you know, mm -hmm. on Twitter or whatever. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. But until I have like a thing to dig into it, a reason to dig into it, I'm not I'm not uh, one to just just follow those trends. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm still reasonably excited about a number of things, but nothing that's uh, nothing that's really jumping out at me right now. How about you, Sean? I'm very excited about we got the Rust uh, diversity inclusion initi initiative kicking off. How's that? Oh. What's that? What's that all about? basically a bunch of projects that we um, presented that would specifically benefit from the input of people who are otherwise underrepresented in the Rust community, which for better or for worse, what a lot of uh, folks came up with were documentation focused. My project is improving uh, the availability of documentation and guides around the Rust web story. Okay. But basically, so we have a bunch of people from all over the world who next week is when is when the official kickoff of the project is. They're going to be spending a few hours a week working on their respective projects. And in, in return, they get access to Rust Heavy Hitters and uh, paid travel to a conference of their choice. Hmm. I think a lot of the work that that's going to come out of the project is going to be very helpful for all kinds of aspects of the Rust community. It's targeting everything. So I'm targeting the website of things. Uh, there's a lot of stuff looking at even just the actual Rust Lang suite of websites, a lot of the tutorials and guides targeting brand new users, and all these things where like there's work on improving these things being done already, but the people who are working on improving them all kind of share the same mindset. Mm -hmm. And Rust in particular is a language that very, very badly suffers from a survivability bias. It has, I think, more than most languages, a large drop-off rate very early on of people who run into the borrow checker or have never worked with a, a manually memory-managed language before or just the inherent complexity of the language that, that we've done a poor job of, um, I want to say hiding, but like abstracting over. Okay, hmm. yeah. And so the, I think Rust, more than most languages, suffers very much from groupthink. And I think that... This is not going to be a silver bullet, but I think it will have a, a huge impact. That sounds awesome. It's interesting that those are were all, like you said, most of them were, well, we need more documentation from people who, you know, haven't, basically haven't had that, haven't passed that survivability barrier yet, I guess is what, right. is what you would say. Or just have different life experiences. Right, right. Have a different point of view. Cool. All right. Should we wrap up? Yeah. Jared, do you want to, do you want to plug anything before we wrap up? Uh, yeah. Diesel. It's a really nice <laughs> Rust library if you're into that kind of thing. You should send, the, send that guy money on Patreon or something. <laughs> you're all right. <laughs> cool. So people who want to hear more from Jared can head over to changelog.com. You know, there's a lot of great content over there. You guys have been cranking it out for years now. <laughs> Thanks. So, appreciate, appreciate that. It. I have always respected you guys do a really good job with your ad reads. <laughs> Thank you. We... No, just they, they sound like old-timey, not old-timey, but like professionally done radio ads. Good yeah. I always felt like we're not very good at it, and you folks are, so. <laughs> well, all props on that go to Adam, because he's the uh, ad reader and the producer. So he, I agree, I think he, we put a lot of love into our, into our production and into our ad reads, so I appreciate that you appreciate it. <laughs> all right, cool. Thanks for joining us, Jared. And like I said, check out uh, changelog.com and follow that podcast and some of the other podcasts on there. I'm sure 
if our listeners aren't listening yet, uh, I know I'm confident they'll enjoy a number of those shows. So uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 121. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.